Chapter Twenty Six of the Breaking Point by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. To Elizabeth, the first days of Dick's absence were unbelievably dreary. She seemed to live only from one visit of the postman to the next. She felt sometimes that only part of her was at home in the Wheeler house, slept at night in her white bed, donned its black frocks and took them off and made those sad daily pilgrimages to the cemetery above the town, where her mother tidied with tender hands the long narrow mound, so fearfully remindful of Jim's tall slim body. That part of her grieved sorely, and spent itself in small comforting actions and little caressing touches on bowed heads and grief-stooped shoulders. It put away Jim's clothing, and kept immaculate the room where now her mother spent most of her waking hours. It sent her on her knees at night to pray for Jim's happiness, in some young man heaven which would please him. But the other part of her was not there at all. It was off with Dick in some mysterious place of mountains and vast distance called Wyoming. And because of this division in herself, because she felt that her loyalty to her people had wavered, because she knew that already she had forsaken her father and mother, and would follow her love through the rest of her life, she was touchingly anxious to comfort and to please them. "'She's taking Dick's absence very hard,' Mrs. Wheeler said one night, when she had kissed them and gone upstairs to bed. "'She worries me sometimes.' Mr. Wheeler sighed. Why was it that a man could not tell his children what he had learned, that nothing was so great as one expected, that love was worth living for, but not dying for. The impatience of youth for life! It had killed Jim, it was hurting Nina, it would all come, all come in God's good time. The young did not live to-day, but always to-morrow. There seemed no time to live to-day for any one. First one looked ahead and said, I will be so happy, and before one knew it one was looking back and saying, I was so happy. She'll be all right, he said aloud. He got up and whistled for the dog. I'll take him around the block before I lock up, he said heavily. He bent over and kissed his wife. She was a sad figure to him in her black dress. He did not say to her what he thought sometimes, that Jim had been saved a great deal, that to live on and to lose the things one loved, one by one, was harder than to go quickly from a joyous youth. He had not told her what he knew about Jim's companion that night. She would never have understood. In her simple and childlike faith, she knew that her boy sat that day among the blessed company of heaven. He himself believed that Jim had gone forgiven into whatever lay behind the veil we call death, had gone shriven and clean before the judge who knew the urge of youth and life. He did not fear for Jim. He only missed him. He walked round the block that night, a stooped commonplace figure, the dog at his heels. Now and then he spoke to him for companionship. At the corner he stopped and looked along the side street toward the Livingston house. And as he looked, he sighed. Jim and Nina, and now Elizabeth. Jim and Nina were beyond his care now. He could do no more. But what could he do for Elizabeth? That, too, wasn't that beyond him? He stood still, facing the tragedy of his helplessness, beset by vague apprehensions. Then he went on doggedly, his hands clasped behind him, his head sunk on his breast. 
He lay awake for a long time that night, wondering whether he and Dick had been quite fair to Elizabeth. She should, he thought, have been told. Then, if Dick's apprehensions were justified, she would have had some preparation. As it was, suppose something turned up out there, something that would break her heart. He had thought Margaret was sleeping, but after a time she moved and slipped her hand into his. It comforted him. That, too, was life. Very soon now they would be alone together again, as in the early days before the children came. All the years and the struggle, and then back where they started. But still, thank God, hand in hand. Ever since the night of Jim's death, Mrs. Sayre had been a constant visitor to the house. She came in, solid, practical, and with an everyday manner neither forcedly cheerful nor too decorously mournful, which made her very welcome. After the first three days, when she had practically lived at the house, there was no necessity for small pretensions with her. She knew the china closet and the pantry and the kitchen. She had even penetrated to Mr. Wheeler's shabby old den on the second floor, and had slept a part of the first night there on the leather couch with broken springs, which he kept because it fitted his body. She was a kindly woman, and she had ached with pity. And because of her usual detachment from the town and its affairs, the feeling that she was being of service gave her a little glow of content. She liked the family, too, and particularly she liked Elizabeth. But after she had seen Dick and Elizabeth together once or twice, she felt that no plan she might make for Wallace could possibly succeed. Lying on the old leather couch that first night, between her frequent excursions among the waking family, she had thought that out and abandoned it. But during the days that followed the funeral, she was increasingly anxious about Wallace. She knew that rumors of the engagement had reached him, for he was restless and irritable. He did not care to go out, but wandered about the house, or until late at night sat smoking alone on the terrace, looking down at the town with sunken, unhappy eyes. Once or twice in the evening he had taken his car and started out, and lying awake in her French bed she would hear him coming hours later. In the mornings his eyes were suffused and his color bad, and she knew that he was drinking in order to get to sleep. On the third day after Dick's departure for the West, she got up when she heard him coming in, and putting on her dressing-gown and slippers, knocked at his door. "'Come in,' he called ungraciously. She found him with his coat off, standing half defiantly with a glass of whiskey and soda in his hand. She went up to him and took it from him. "'We've had enough of that in the family, Wally,' she said, "'and it's a pretty poor resource in time of trouble.' I'll have that back if you don't mind. Nonsense, she said briskly, and flung it, glass and all, out the window. She was rather impressive when she turned. I've been a fairly indulgent mother, she said. I've let you alone because it's a sair trait to run away when they feel a pull on the bit. But there's a limit to my patience, and it is reached when my son drinks to forget a girl. He flushed and glowered at her in sombre silence but she moved about the room calmly, giving it a housekeeper's critical inspection, and apparently unconscious of his anger. "'I don't believe you ever cared for anyone in all your life,' he said roughly. "'If you had, you would know.' She was straightening a picture over the mantel, and she completed her work before she turned. 
I care for you. That's different. Very well, then. I cared for your father. I cared terribly. And he killed my love. She padded out of the room, her heavy square body in its blazing kimono, a trifle rigid, but her face still and calm. He remained staring at the door when she had closed it, and for some time after. He knew what message for him had lain behind that emotionless speech of hers, not only understanding, but a warning. She had cared terribly, and his father had killed that love. He had drunk and played through his gay young life, and then he had died, and no one had greatly mourned him. She had left the decanter on its stand, and he made a movement toward it. Then, with a half-smile, he picked it up and walked to the window with it. He was still smiling half-boyishly as he put out his light and got into bed. It had occurred to him that the milkman's flivver, driven in at the break of dawn, would encounter considerable glass. By morning, after a bad night, he had made a sort of double-headed resolution, that he was through with booze, as he termed it, and that he would find out how he stood with Elizabeth. But for a day or two no opportunity presented itself. When he called there was always present some grave-faced, sympathizing visitor, dark-clad and low of voice, and over the drawing-room would hang the indescribable hush of a house in mourning. It seemed to touch Elizabeth, too, making her remote and beyond earthly things. He would go in, burning with impatience, hungry for the mere sight of her, fairly overcharged with emotion, only to face that strange new spirituality that made him ashamed of the fleshly urge in him. Once he found Clare Rossiter there, and was aware of something electric in the air. After a time he identified it. Behind the Rossiter girl's soft voice and sympathetic words there was a veiled hostility. She was watching Elizabeth, was over-conscious of her, and she was, for some reason, playing up to himself. He thought he saw a faint look of relief on Elizabeth's face when Clare at last rose to go. "'I'm on my way to see the man Dick Livingstone left in his place,' Clare said, adjusting her veil at the mirror. I've got a cold. Isn't it queer, the way the whole Livingston connection is broken up? Hardly queer, and it's only temporary. Possibly. But if you ask me, I don't believe Dick will come back. Mind, I don't defend the town, but it doesn't like to be fooled. And he's fooled it for years. I know a lot of people who'd quit going to him. She turned to Wallie. He isn't David's nephew, you know. The question is, who is he? Of course I don't say it, but a good many are saying that when a man takes a false identity, he has something to hide. She gave them no chance to reply, but sauntered out with her sex-conscious, half-sensuous walk. Outside the door her smile faded, and her face was hard and bitter. She might forget Dick Livingstone, but never would she forgive herself for her confession to Elizabeth, nor Elizabeth for having heard it. Wallie turned to Elizabeth when she had gone, slightly bewildered. "'What's got into her?' he inquired, and then seeing Elizabeth's white face rather shrewdly. "'That was one for him and two for you, was it?' "'I don't know, probably. I wonder if you would look like that if anyone attacked me.' "'No one attacks you, Wallie.' "'That's not an answer. You wouldn't, would you? It's different, isn't it?' "'Yes, a little.' He straightened and looked past her, unseeing at the wall. 
"'I guess I've known it for quite a while,' he said at last. "'I didn't want to believe it, so I wouldn't. Are you engaged to him?' "'Yes. It's not to be known just yet, Wallie.' "'He's a good fellow,' he said, after a rather long silence. "'Not that that makes it easier,' he added, with a twisted smile. Then, boyishly and unexpectedly, he said, "'Oh, my God!' He sat down, and when the dog came and placed a head on his knee, he patted it absently. He wanted to go, but he had a queer feeling that when he went, he went for good. "'I've cared for you for years,' he said. "'I've been a poor lot, but I'd have been a good bit worse except for you.' And again, "'Only last night I made up my mind that if you'd have me, I'd make something out of myself. I suppose a man's pretty weak when he puts a responsibility like that on a girl." She yearned over him, rather. She made little tentative overtures of friendship and affection, but he scarcely seemed to hear them, wrapped as he was in the selfish absorption of his disappointment. When she heard the postman outside and went to the door for the mail, she thought he had not noticed her going. But when she returned he was watching her with jealous, almost tragic eyes. "'I suppose you hear from him by every mail. There has been nothing to-day.' Something in her voice or her face made him look at her closely. "'Has he written at all?' "'The first day he got there, not since.' He went away soon, and not, after all, with the feeling of going for good. In his sceptical young mind, fed by Clare's malice, was growing a comforting doubt of Dick's good faith. End of chapter 26